it's a real delight to come and just sit in this space for a few moments quietly with you to feel the quality of of presence and engagement that is here your days and weeks of practice and years and decades of practice feels like very much a privilege for me to have that opportunity to just be in this field, in this space and also to be part of this journey of exploration, of deepening, of opening of waking up that underpins and informs our retreat practice and our lives. I'd like to speak this morning about what we could call a compassionate response, what it means to allow our practice to inform we could say transform our way of being in the world. It seems at one level that we practice it to develop wisdom, to free the heart and mind from suffering. We could say to bring to an end the suffering in life that is pointed to in these teachings. From one orientation we see the the power of wisdom to contemplate and to to deeply understand, to realize the profound teaching of not-self. To see that we are not defined by, nor the owners of, the experience that arises. To not identify with the experience that appears is to no longer be compelled to enact the reactivity that arises through the psychological and biological structures that we inhabit. To see the emptiness of our of the apparent separation the appearance that when we examine carefully and understand the dependent nature, the arising togetherness, dependent arising of what we call ourself and what we call the world, not separate from each other, dependent upon each other, informed by each other. And we see that the appearance of a boundary between what we call me or myself and what we call other or the world, that this has no ultimate reality to it. This understanding of not separateness is a wisdom that lies at the heart of all authentic and transformative spiritual teachings. And it's something we perhaps begin to sense more and more deeply in the silence, in the stillness, as this human organism becomes a more fully conscious and fully wakeful, we could say apparatus, for knowing the truth of life. Or as one teacher put it, when we stop being an organ of 
repetition, when we're no longer simply reenacting historical patterns. And we become an organ of knowing that has a remarkable capacity for penetrating the truth and depth of life. We sense perhaps sometimes a softening and opening, a dissolving of the boundaries, a sense of fluidity in which the very immediacy of our affecting and being affected by life and by others and by the world around us reveals to us in that very affectedness that we are affected, that we are not apart from or separate from what is affecting us. And equally in all those things that we affect or impact, we are not apart from those things which we impact. Understanding this, seeing this more clearly, it becomes evident that to speak of life and different parts is, although it has its practical application, it's useful to know whose mouth we should put the spoonful of food in that we might have at lunchtime, and probably more useful to put it in our own than someone else's. There's a certain practicality in that recognition that this is my spoon, or my dinner, or my mouth not someone else's, but at the same time that this is a functional recognition, not an ultimate one. To know that what we are is, we could say, the wholeness, the indivisibleness, maybe something which we don't find language that quite resonates for, and yet we can feel, we can know, we can realize, make real as a known experience. Shantideva, who lived in the, I think, the 6th century in India, was a great teacher, poet, and mystic. He said, just as we see these limbs, arms and legs as part of our body, can we not see all beings as limbs of embodied life? We could extend that to see, of course, all expressions of life as part of of life each part of life ourself in another form if we truly start to understand this then the foundations on which these teachings are based the invitation to the practice of of dana and sila as the foundations on which transformative meditation can be developed we see that the invitation to practice generosity is not self-deprivation but in fact giving to ourselves sharing with oneself, and sila, to refrain from causing harm to others, is of course to refrain from harming ourselves. What we do to another, we do to ourselves. What we do to this world, we do to ourselves. So when we share with another, we share with ourselves. When we withhold from another, we withhold from ourselves. And something in us knows that, and this is why it hurts if we're really close and sensitive. 
to feel what it is when in ourselves or others around us the action is coming from that place of separateness that fails to recognize the inseparability of ourself from all around us. When we care for others, we are caring for ourselves. This is evident. If we are close to the inner experience of what happens when we do this, we harm ourselves when we fail to care for others. I'm not saying this because I don't imagine you have never heard such uh, teachings, but because I think it's important to just reflect and remember how central this is to all that we do in a retreat. And particularly in coming into the latter period of a retreat where one might have some relationship of uh, Well, I don't want to say attachment, but one might be enjoying being in the quiet and the stillness and the simplicity of a retreat, and yet understanding that this is very much a, this too is not separate from the life in which we may be more engaged in the world. The world is here in the retreat, and of course the retreat is out in the world that we continue our life in and through. When the underlying intentions are aligned and sustained through the different forms of our life, whether in retreat or in the day-to-day world of our lives. So this quality of compassion, karuna, has as its fundamental element this responsiveness of heart and mind to care for, to wish to reduce the pain and the suffering that is in the world, that is in another, that is in ourselves. that is opposed to cruelty or the wish to or the well not the wish so much as the the disregard of impact on others that so often characterizes human behavior that fails to understand that there isn't someone else or somewhere else where the effect takes place that the effect always comes back to its source because its source is not separate from the place in which it lands, so to speak. All action is within a single field. And so, when that sensitivity of connection, of that recognition of our shared existences is something that we're in touch with when it's speaking to us and in us and through us in our action and our life, then of course compassion is a natural response. It's not something we do. It's not a kind of I should do that because it's good or because it's what the Buddha suggested or other great saints and teachers and sages of our human culture and history. But it's the natural expression of the awakened heart and mind.
again quoting Shantideva. He says once, he said once, uh, or wrote, when acting on behalf of others, no amazement arises in me. Just as when feeding myself, I expect nothing in return. It's already complete. There's a full circle already. And express the expression of compassion. Just as when the foot is sore, the hand might rub it. Natural response. It's not as if the hand needs some kind of congratulations for rubbing the foot. The hand appears different, it seems. But clearly, it is not separate from. Understanding that distinction, the hand looks and appears and functions differently than the foot. But clearly, in this body, it is not separate from the foot. So too we appear and function according to our individual and particular characteristic circumstances and conditions. That does not mean we are separate from all that we are amongst. When we recognize the shared nature of this existence, the shared nature of all experience, the encounter with suffering and pain, with struggle and difficulty, is not something that leads us to feel isolated in our own suffering or to try to hold ourselves apart from the suffering of others because it may distress us. When we understand it as shared, it connects us profoundly. And so many of us, I think, will know this experience when we've shared in different contexts about those things that are really difficult and heard from others speaking of what is difficult in their own experience, whether on a meditation retreat or in life. Somehow, it makes us feel very close because we understand the sharedness. Connects us in a profound way. And so with compassion to understand it's not necessarily a feeling, although it can include feelings that are tender, warm, moist, sometimes perhaps raw, painful when our heart is touched or moved by the contact with the suffering of others or of ourselves. But what compassion always includes is a response. The nature of it is responsiveness. It may be simply a thought or a movement in the heart that doesn't have an avenue for expression through action or through words. But it is a response nonetheless to relieve, to transform, to heal the suffering that we see in this world, in others, in ourselves. Beautifully for me expressed in the, the words of Rio Khan, a Zen monk, poet and hermit who, who lived in the uh, I think, uh, 18th century. And he said once, Oh, that my monk's robe was large enough to gather up all these suffering beings in this fleeting world. And that sense of just wanting to gather up, to bring into, into one's robe, to take into one's heart, perhaps one might imagine, all the beings that suffer in this world. Not as a response out of aversion to the pain of others or oneself, the wish to bring it to an end simply because we don't like it. But through being open to actually feeling that pain, to being touched by that, 
and the openness and the connection, it is the natural response of our heart to wish to relieve and to act to relieve that suffering. And what that means, of course, for us, and this is a fundamental element of practice, is that we learn to open to what is difficult in ourselves. Only to the degree that we can open to the difficulty in our own experience can we really be open to the difficulty in another. To really be there not to get rid of or to avoid because it's uncomfortable or painful, scary or threatening. But to actually allow ourselves to be touched and in that depth of being touched to allow the response that comes. It's all right, it's important in fact also to know that sometimes we come to the place where that feels like enough or perhaps too much and sometimes we need to also step back from that encounter in ourselves or with regard to another. What's important there is recognizing that of course as human beings we have our limits in what we can hold and what we can respond to. But that that doesn't mean turning away. Stepping back means taking and finding space, whether moving our attention a little further from a place of distress or pain in the body or emotional um, distress in the heart and just opening the attention to include some space but not turning away, not moving away as if to take a step backwards but continue facing towards means we stay in relationship with and likewise in the world sometimes we can really open to and allow ourselves to receive what we see around us perhaps our fellow retreatant, meditator, someone in distress at times this is what we might notice and sometimes we might feel we can really just be close not needing to get physically close but really stay close to that other times it might feel like actually what we need to do is just make a little space in the heart but that doesn't mean dismiss or forget or turn away from when we come to such places we are I think asked to bring immense compassion to ourselves understanding our own limits of which there will inevitably be inevitably be many we're not asked to have somehow gone beyond our humanity by being invited to engage with suffering. And so the question, of course, arises, what can I do? What do I do? What should I do? And I think the sense of I and doing is one of the things to really look out for. It's not normally in the service of wisdom and compassion, of authentic Dharma life. More, I think, rather than a sense of what should I do or what must I do, it's just to be see, well, what's possible? What's possible? And what do I feel moved to do? This is really a question for one's life in all its aspects. All expressions of practice are in a sense an expression of this interest in seeing what might be useful and what might be possible. Sometimes it seems like we can't do all that we might wish to be able to do. I had experience um, in India when I was traveling as a young man 
going to visit one of the what we say uh, one of the charitable organizations in Calcutta where I was at the time visiting my grandmother who uh, is Bengali from Calcutta and uh, while I was there I I went to a uh, one of the uh, places run by the organization of Mother Teresa the uh, Sisters of Mercy, I think, or Charity. Yes, I always am not. Thank you, sir. Uh, miss, uh, the Sisters of uh, Charity, and it's a place called Shishi Bhavan, which is, translates simply as Children's Home, an orphanage for for many babies and also young children of predominantly of of poor people living on the street in Calcutta, who in situations where they were not able to raise the child they'd brought into the world. Or through uh, unfortunate circumstances, some of them having been orphaned and children's left without parents. And went with a friend into this room, probably the size of this meditation hall. It was full of cots, and each cot was two babies. Probably each cot, not a lot, taking up a lot more space than each of your meditation mats. So this room full of babies, two babies in every room. And as we went in, my friend and I, we immediately somehow realized what was happening because there was a lot of babies. There were two or three of the uh, the nuns of the order and they had either bottles of, I guess, milk formula or they had uh, flannels and water and they were either feeding babies or wiping their bottoms. And they were going flat out. There was a lot of babies. There were not many of them. And as we walked in, the babies nearest where we entered the room looked up at us. The slightly older ones started to pull themselves up on the sides of their cots and even reach out their arms towards us. And quite immediately we realized that, without saying anything, that these these babies were being fed and wiped. But the nuns had no time to pick them up and hold them. And so we just... Room full of babies, there we were, started picking them up, one at a time, and just... It was like having a limpet go on. Sort of, they knew what they wanted, these little beings, and just holding this baby for a while. And then there's a room full of babies, so after a while, peeling it off putting this little being down and picking up the next one. And just holding it. And just holding it, just being there. And then we were only allowed to stay for two hours because various Indian cultural norms, um, particularly men aren't allowed to work with small children. It's just a, a social convention. and You can see there's some wisdom in it. But whatever it meant that we couldn't stay or become regular volunteers there, and yet in that two hours, although we didn't actually get round all the babies, there was something very powerful happened. It was heartbreaking to feel the degree of need that was there. And there was something profoundly healing in just doing what we could, which was hold them for as long as we had, as many as we could in that time. And I remember having the thought at the time, and I think it was a true one, that said to me, you know, if you were to spend the rest of your life doing this, there's not necessarily a life that would be better spent that I could think of. I think it was probably true. That wasn't what happened for me. But there's something that I learned in that that stayed with me really for my life as a regular reflection since then, that sense of doing what one can. Of course, I would have loved to be able to transform all these small beings' lives to care and ensure that they were safe and well and fed and had a a good opportunity to to move out into the world. But that, it seemed, wasn't given to me. Or maybe I didn't choose it. But whatever, that sense of doing what we can, I think in such situations our heart is both broken and healed. To allow the enormity of need and and to make the response that a human being can, which is just within what's possible for this one.
Everything we do makes a difference. Every single response we make to this world becomes part of what this world is and is woven into the very fabric of it in which all of life is held. And of course, sometimes it may look like sweet and tender and kind responses of just holding another being who wishes to be hold, held. He just wishes to know that there is warmth and love there and support. And other times it may be something quite fierce, something quite strong in the expression of compassion that I find quite compelling and equally necessary at times as that of the, the protector, the image the Buddha used of a parent, classically a mother, but equally a parent, standing outside the door of the room in which there is a small child as someone comes towards the room wishing to hurt the child. And the mother, the parent, the adult here is saying, no, there's no way you are coming through that door. Stop. And as fierce as one has to be to make sure that this person doesn't come through the door, I will be that fierce. Not out of hatred, not without kindness, but because that's what the situation demands when harm is threatened to those who cannot protect themselves. And this quality of, of compassion embodied and expressed also in a mudra, sometimes one sees the Buddha in this posture, the fearless mudra, the soft part of the hand, so it's not aggressive, but it's strong, it's firm, can say and does say stop or no. I don't know if you remember the scene from The Lord of the Rings in the first of the films or the book if you remember it where the wizard Gandalf stands on the bridge in front of the sort of fiery Balrog demon and says you shall not pass. Boom. I kind of like that scene. But there's a quality in it of real strength and nobility. It's sometimes this quality we need internally when we see the forces of reactivity arising and compelling us. And just to say, no, actually, I'm not letting that reactive patterning come through the gate of action or cross the bridge into the world and play itself out. And equally, sometimes it's in the world that it happens and... Uh, While you were sitting here very quietly, uh, myself and some friends were involved in some civil disobedience action um, at 10 days ago in London uh, with a group called Extinction Rebellion. And uh, some of them, well certainly Kirsten was there on the same bridge and others you'll know. Um, and we were part of a process of trying to bring attention to the to the really uh, catastrophically inadequate response of our government in this country and world governments to the, to the circumstance of our environment, our ecology in the face of climate change and environmental breakdown. And uh, it was very interesting to be in a situation of facing policemen and uh, on one occasion and angry motorists on another and actually just know we're just staying here because... Uh, although we don't want to annoy people, this actually brings attention to something. And I was touched at the end of uh, a series of these uh, processes, one of, the, uh, one of the policemen actually said to us when we were no longer in a confrontational situation, um, and obviously this was probably off-duty as far as the policeman was concerned, he said, thank you for being the voice. Sometimes when we stand up for what we believe in, for what we care about, even if we're not sure if it's actually going to change the situation, but we call attention to what we are concerned about. Sometimes when we do that, we're speaking on behalf of our living system, our wholeness of which we have a responsibility to express what we can in its service and support, knowing that in one level, we could say this is purely enlightened selfishness because it is our support system. But not just for that, but equally because 
our spiritual well-being depends upon is dependent upon our life being lived in accordance with what is true. Waking up is not for ourself. It's not for something else or for someone other than ourself. But waking up isn't for ourself. And so compassion includes the quality of a, of a fearless and courageous willingness to stand up for what we see to be true for what we care about, to sometimes take risks with our comfort or our privilege. And to understand we do this also for those who we might see to be the problem or the perpetrator, understanding they too are not separate. They may be the expression of forces that we recognize as harmful, but they are not in and of themselves that force any more than we would be wise to identify with the wholesome force we might wish to represent but understanding that it can come through here compassion courage action in the service of well-being can come through this place when it's open when it's connected when it's present so incredibly uh for me inspiring story of a remarkable dharma practitioner and uh, wise compassionate being su yun who lived in the uh, end of the 19th cent 19th century in china empty cloud his name translates as he was a remarkable inspiring teacher and practitioner and he was also regarded by the uh, authorities where he lived in China as something of a uh, of a seditious and dangerous rebel because he was not subject to their coercion it seemed and uh, threatened on many occasions and on one occasion um, when he was apparently 110 or maybe it's 109 I can't remember exactly now, he lived to be very very old it seems a number of thugs were sent to beat him up to within it seems millimeters of his life and when his students found him in an incredibly broken condition bodily and they, they actually said to master we know your great power we know that you could keep yourself alive even though your body is so broken through the depth of your practice but please you do not need to suffer on our account we give you permission to die here you don't have to stay here for us his students who loved him so much said it's okay to go we don't want you to suffer and he said actually no I'm not keeping myself alive for you I'm doing it for the people who beat me I don't want them to have my murder on their conscience I don't want them to receive the karma of having killed this practitioner an incredible motivation for suffering to be willing to feel and be in a place of pain to protect the person who inflicted it upon you quite inspiring and at another level clearly empty cloud is understanding the wholeness of life so far as he could protect even those his uh his beaters, those who beat him, so far as he could protect them, he understands also he's protecting, we could say, his larger self. What he most fundamentally knows himself to be part of and simply to be. So I think with that it's also important to say that compassion isn't always about self-sacrifice. In fact, when we come from a place of some sort of prescriptive I must, I should, it easily leads to resentment and it comes often from some sense of trying to 
complete or fulfill or somehow address a an unacknowledged and unhealed sense of not quite fully valuing our own life and what we are. When we push and force ourselves, it doesn't actually serve. It becomes simply another expression of the of the forces of hatred, of the forces of of disconnection. And so sometimes we have to, I think I might have said this earlier actually, we have to really also practice compassion with our limitations and to understand that each of us have our place in this. And what that looks like will look different for each of us. There's no way we have to do it or way it has to appear. And it was really clear to me, standing on the bridge in London, the people who weren't in the front line were equally standing with as much courage as those of us who were in the front line. And that the police standing in front of us, looking at us, trying to tell us to move, or telling us to move, and not succeeding initially, they too were doing what they had to do and their function. So, with our own place and our own limitations, Making peace with that is an essential part of supporting our heart to be able to inform our life and our action to do what's possible. To not be hung up on what isn't possible, on who we imagine ourselves to not be, but just to see what can come through here. What can come through here. And to ask for help. Ask for help in responding. We don't and we can't do this alone. We say this often about our practice and the inner work. Nobody can do your inner practice for you. But of course, you don't have to do it alone. And so we practice together. And so too, that aspect of practice that is outer responsiveness, to not do it alone. I was... Uh, I was back in India for the first time in 16 years last uh, last February and returned to Budgaya where I'd spent many, many times the, the village that's grown up around the, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment and where I spent a lot of time practicing many years ago. And when I'd been there all those years ago, I'd formed a relationship with a beggar who touched my heart profoundly. He had legs that had shriveled from... Um, early polio and he he had he would sit in the market square as many beggars did but he always just sat there and had a sense of dignity to him and it always touched me and much differently than many other beggars who would sort of come quite desperately like hungry ghosts sort of chasing anyone who looked like they might be able to give them something and I'd, I'd spent time with him but I'd always just felt the limitation of I can't do much for him I can give him a little food I can't even speak to him and of course, I was sure he would be dead when I came back to Budgaya, because 16 years, how could he, he was already, it seemed like an old man then, how could he have lived another 16 years? And I was so amazed as I walked into the village square, and there he was. Not quite in the same place, because the town has changed, but he was there, and the same quality of he didn't recognize me, of course, I was just someone who fed him samosas 16 years ago for, you know, on regular, but um, sort of, anyway, over time. But something happened when I was sitting there, and I was again just feeling a lot of love for this person, and bought him some food, and just gave him a little money. You can't give someone a lot of money, because otherwise everyone else will attack them. And so, something occurred to me, and it was really striking to me that it had never occurred before. I, I could ask for help. I can't speak to this person, but actually I know someone here who speaks Hindi. They can speak to them. And I went and got a friend who I had seen um, the day before and said, can you come and help me talk to this beggar? And actually, so I, I found out his name. His name was Sita. I found out he had a family. Ah, that's why his, he's actually got a place he goes. This is his day job. But he's not completely isolated in the world. And uh, through the help of then another who, someone else, an, a, a local person, um, managed to go and actually 
find out what his family needed and how their house could be sort of strengthened and actually do something more than just giving him a little bit of food. And it was a small thing in many ways. But what was really interesting, why I tell the story is because somehow that sense of there's not much I can do is based on a, a such a habitual unconscious position that we look at it from just me by myself. Just, oh, what can I do? <laughs> Actually, it's true, me. <laughs> I can't even speak to the man in his language. So I just smiled at him. But, oh, me, plus, oh, wow, we can suddenly do a lot more. And with a, a rickshaw driver who speaks English and Hindi, and me, who has the fortune of being a Westerner, and therefore what will put a roof on this man's house is, for me, really just a small amount of money, we can do that. We actually, when we don't relate and respond from that isolated place, are suddenly more powerful and have much greater capacity to have an impact than we realize. And I think so often the, the hesitation with that responsiveness is we, we don't quite recognize the power that is in our shared responsiveness. When we try and just respond from me, it's pretty limited. And uh, when we start to feel the power of a shared response, a connected response, we're actually tapping into something that is without limits. And that is really the natural expression of the freedom that we seek and that we love. So I'd like to in concluding just uh, invite you to allow what of this feels to resonate to just resonate without having to come to any ideas about whether it means what should or shouldn't be done. I think authentic action is something that comes through us when we're present, when we're open. It's not something that we do, but something that we are. And yet, of course, we can align our heart with that possibility. We can open ourselves to being that. Not doing anything, but being that through which action moves. And I'd like to share with you, and probably many of you are familiar with uh, Shantideva's vow, the uh, Shantideva, I've, I think I, as I s said, he uh, was a great teacher, mystic, and uh, wrote, you know, one of the definitive works, teachers, treatises, I don't know how you describe it, uh, teachings on, uh, on compassion and the practice of the compassionate heart, Bodhicharya Vatara, the way of the Bodhisattva, we could say one who's devoted one's life to the service of wisdom and compassion, to being an expression of it. And Shantideva, he writes, he says, and really this could be an aspiration for our lives or an invitation to our possibility. He writes, May I be a guard for those who are without protection, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an island for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed, for all who need a servant. May I be a slave. May I be the wish-fulfilling jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power and the supreme remedy. May I be the tree of miracles and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures. For the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. And thus for every single thing that lives, 
vast in number like the boundless reaches of the sky. May I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. So may we all, here together in our practice and in our lives, may we allow this practice to open us to being the vessel for the compassion of life, the vessel in which the compassion of life can act with us and through us and for us for the protection, for the preservation, for the well-being of all that lives, of all that is. For the welfare and well-being of what is here and now and all that is to come. <coughs> 